Good morning, everybody. Is it morning? Good afternoon, everybody. You guys are giving me mixed signals. I can't tell what's going on. Artie, I, I want to thank you very much for that introduction and for inviting me here. Uh, you mentioned that I was the youngest person on that trip and that I was anointed a responsable. And as an older person now, I understand that uh, really the old people got together and said, he's going to do it. And I was stuck with it. <laughs> so thanks for bringing that up, Artie. But I'm older and wiser now. I've spent my 30s, almost all of my 30s, working in food justice with young people, mostly younger than myself, some older than myself. And I do it because I think this is one of the defining issues of our time. And I do it because it also is one of the best ways I know, maybe the only way I know, to make a true difference in all the places I call home. America, Ghana, and West Africa. And mentioning that, I wanna, I wanna say thank you to the, the drummers. I couldn't actually see them when I was backstage, but the unmistakable sound of that djembe almost made me wanna weep. I felt so connected and so happy, like I've been feeling at this conference. But that sound, I don't know exactly where it was from, but it's so similar to the rhythms I grew up with in, in West Africa when I was a child. And it, and it brought me back, so thank you for that. I actually wish that you could come back and I could have entered with them. Wouldn't that have been cool? I would have come in, wow. Has anybody seen Coming to America? Just like, just like that, I would have come in, strutting my stuff, it would have been awesome. So if you're there for the exit, folks, uh, Okay, can we hook it up? That would make me feel so good. Um, speaking of Ghana, let me just tell you something I did recently. This is totally not in my script at all, but I was just talking with someone and recalled it. Uh, I, I made jollof rice. Has anybody ever, anybody ever had jollof rice? Woohoo! Yes. A couple of people, jollof rice. It's rice, tomato paste, tomatoes, vegetables, chicken, depends on what you put in. It's a traditional dish of West Africa, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, all around. And, um, and it's wonderful. I've never made it. I grew up with it, and I have never made it. I made a commitment to myself uh, that I was going to try. I was going to try to put aside the busy activist, you know, mentality and do something that uh, was good for me, that brought me, back to, brought me back to home. And actually, that's some of the hardest stuff to do when you're like a busy activist. Um, but I did it. And you know what? It was so satisfying and not as delicious as my aunt's or my mother's, but it's pretty good anyway. Um, I'll come back to that later because I, I do want to maybe touch on what it's uh, about making commitments in, in our own lives and how important small things, how, how even big small things can be that we do ourselves. Um, but I was asked to talk about the Real Food Challenge. And I will do that. Um, but I'm gonna start actually from a, uh, a, a different place. You know how the uh, presentation yesterday about that amazing Google Earth application and. Uh, you know, it kind of like, you zoomed in, you zoomed out, yeah, it was incredible. Um, all the presentations yesterday were incredible, and, and today, I, I now want to be like a steel, steel worker. Does anybody find themselves, you want to? <laughs> totally, sign me up, you know. I want to do Google Earth, everything, anyway. But like, with the Google Earth, like, you know, you could zoom in and you could zoom out, right? And, and that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to zoom out, way out, and then, and then zoom back in. 
And to do that, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to take a mental journey with me. It's a, a journey past three doors, three doors separated in time and space. And each of these doors has something, I think, to tell us about today in our current situation. So for the very first door, I'm actually going to try to describe it in a way that will allow you to feel it, to almost picture yourself standing in front of it. Okay, so if it would help you to close your eyes, please go ahead and do that. So imagine that you're in a room. It's about 30 feet by 30 feet. The floor is stone. The walls and the ceiling are a mix of stone and cement. And they're damp. But it's a dampness you can only smell because the room is pitch black. It's absolutely dark except for the light coming from one wall. It's coming from a low arched doorway in whose frame is silhouetted an iron gate. And as you turn to face the door and you let your, you let your eyes adjust, you can see the beach, a narrow strip of beach, and then the blue and gray of the ocean beyond. This is the door of no return. It's the last place you would touch of Africa if you were a slave passing through it on your way to the waiting ship. I stood in front of this door a few summers ago when I was visiting my family in Ghana. And as you can imagine, it's a place of true suffering. The sorrow is palpable. Millions of people walked past that very spot on their way to a wretched death at sea or a life of bondage in the new world. And if you were one of those people, you would have experienced being snatched from your village by slave raiders. Being marched through the jungle, ripped from everything that you knew, shackled by the neck to other people. And you would have reached Elmina Castle, where the door of no return is. And they would have thrown you in a deep, dark, reeking, crowded pit where you would have waited maybe weeks, maybe months until a ship arrived to take you across the ocean. And that was just the beginning of the journey. So this door represents many things. As human beings, it represents our capacity, our incredible, awful capacity for cruelty to each other. 
but it also represents our capacity for resilience. My own African ancestors did not happen to pass through that door. But the descendants of those who did not only survived in America, they built America. They fought for America. They helped America live up to its highest ideals. And they've opened every door of opportunity that I've ever had in my life. And so I think their story of resilience is all of our stories. And it's something that we can all drink from this well of inspiration. There's something else that the door represents, and that's what I want to focus on. It also represents a beginning, the beginning of our modern food system. In the 18th century, if you could look through that door, and you could look all the way across the Atlantic, what you would see is an unbroken stretch of plantations from Buenos Aires to Baltimore, where slaves would harvest crops ranging from rice for the West Indies, sugar for the British tea, cotton for the textile mills of New England. And in these vast monocrops, the body was depleted and broken, and the soils were depleted. And yet, money was made, and was made for the planters and the huge companies of the time that traded in those goods. So here, looking through this door, I believe you can see the logic, the essence, essential logic of the modern industrial food system at its rawest and purest form. And that logic is that profit matters more than people and it matters more than the earth, right? Profit above all else, above people and the earth. The logic of the plantation is the logic of the modern food system. And it helps to understand this logic. It helps to read the books, helps to experience uh, for yourself what you can of this food system. But to understand the logic helps us penetrate to what is going on. And in this system, it is in the interest of the middleman, the inheritors of those trading companies, the big companies that dominate processing distribution of food, it is in their interest to squeeze farmers, lower their costs, to externalize those costs, dump it on the environment, and to add value. And when you hear adding value, you should think processing. You should think, you should think adding sweeteners and artificial ingredients and corn syrup and all sorts of junk right? that may make us crave it more and may make us buy it more, but it doesn't do anything for our health and our well-being. And that's the extension of the logic. So I think that this logic, industrial logic, you know, and model might work well for some things. I don't know. It might work well for making cars and computers and iPads. I, we can have another discussion about that. But I know it doesn't work for food, right? I know it doesn't work for food. And I used to question it, actually. But I'm, I'm over-questioning it. I know it doesn't work. I know it doesn't work because I know Lucas. 
Lucas, a tomato picker in southern Florida, who toils from dawn to dusk, hard work in the hot sun, without protection, without health care, and he will never, even with all that, give out, get out of poverty. I know it doesn't work for a farmer I met in Illinois who was harassed almost out of existence by Monsanto. I know it doesn't work for the teenagers that I met last week in Brooklyn. When I started talking to them, I asked them how many of them either had diabetes or knew someone with diabetes. Every single hand went up. I know it doesn't work for the 99% of us who are left holding the bag of rising healthcare costs and pollution and, and pesticide drift and, and synthetic fertilizer runoff. And I know it doesn't work if what we really want is real food, right? And what's real food? Let me just get clear about this. Real food is actually pretty simple. Real food is food that nourishes and it nourishes the body, it nourishes the earth, and it nourishes people, both those that eat and, both the, and those that produce. All right. If the logic of real food, sorry, if the logic of the industrial food system is profit above all else, the logic of real food is respect and balance. And it's not that Real food is against profit. It's just against the profit not being shared with those who work the hardest to bring us our food. So real food should be the norm, right? Not the exception. And that's the situation we have today. So I want to go back to the first door, the door of no return. This door represents what we're up against, a global food economy 500 years in the making that treats people and land as just cogs in a machine to make money. The second door. The second door is a wooden door on a busy city street. You might not notice it if you pass by. It's just a little sign above it that says, print shop. The door is a real door. It's in London at 2 George Yard to be exact. And if you were standing outside of this door one morning in 1787, you'd have seen 12 men, mostly Quakers, walk inside. And they were going inside to a meeting, and that meeting was the beginning of the British Anti-Slavery Society. And it was the beginning of the very first citizens' campaign of its kind in the world. And what they started there, petitions to parliament, book tours, truth tours, all of these are the instruments of social change that we take today, that we take for granted. In 10 years, this group of 12 had grown to hundreds of thousands around the globe. And in just 40 years, they did what was unthinkable, ended slavery in the British Empire. And I can tell that some of you are familiar with this, and I wonder if you've read the same book I have, Bury the Chains. Yes, you have. I recommend it to everyone. 
It's a wonderful book, an amazing book. It's a source of inspiration for me. It's by Adam Hochschild. One of the things it does that so brilliantly is also talk about the story of the slaves themselves who fought for their freedom, right? It was both sides of the Atlantic. And this book I cherish. You know, if you cherish a book, like, you know, if you've had the experience of cherishing a book and that has meant something to you, you know what, you know what this book means to me. I, I reached for it. I needed it at a certain point. A few years ago when the Kellogg Foundation released its study about the percent of healthy, green, fair, and affordable food in our economy, right? They asked that question. Out of the $1.1 trillion that Americans spent on food, how much of it is, in effect, real food? And when I heard the answer, I was dismayed. I was discouraged. It was 2%, less than 2%. 2% at the very, very highest. And I had been working at the Food Project for several years at the time, and I was very excited about what we were doing. You know, we had this farm. We had 250,000 pounds of organic produce. We had a low-income farmers market. We had a CSA. We had 150 youth. I mean, it was amazing. And then the, in the news, there's local food and there's organic food. You know, it's like it's all the buzz, right? Like, it's really growing. And then we're, what, a, a, blip, a blip on the radar screen. And I thought, how could this ever change? It's too much. It's too far. And the book helped me. Right? The story. Because I remembered at the time when those men walked into the, and by the way, men and the women who ultimately joined the cause as well and supported them and made their lives possible, right? Um, and who are essential to the cause. But at that point, it was men who entered the building. At that point, the order of the day in the whole world was slavery and serfdom. Three quarters of the world's population were slaves or serfs. What's the name of the book? The book is Bury the Chains. Prophets and Rebels in a Fight to Free an Empire's Slaves. I believe that's the subtitle. Adam Hochschild is the author. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I wonder if there's a commission. <laughs> but there's not. Um, and so to, to suggest at the time, to imagine that you would have a world without slavery was like imagining today that you could have a world economy without oil. And who would be crazy enough to propose that? Huh? Oh, you guys. Well, here's some hope. So it happened, right? In just one generation, it happened. You know, hindsight is 2020, of course. At the time, they didn't know that would happen. All they had was the conviction, their commitment, their belief in what was right or wrong. And that's what they started with. So the second door represents, to me, something that would be cliche if it wasn't factually demonstrably true, which is that a small group of people, of committed people, can and will change the world. So I want to take you to, this, to the third door. The third door is that one. It's the one that all of us walked through this morning. And it represents the possibility that it is us who will make that change. That it's those people in this room and our compatriots and allies and brothers and sisters who can do it. It represents the idea that big change can start with small things. And that's the idea, the notion, the spirit that we started with with the Real Food Challenge. In 2006, I had uh, I was doing some trainings for young food justice leaders, and college students had started to come into those groups. It hadn't been before, it was mostly just teens before. So I was meeting college students, and it was clear that something was happening on college campuses in America. There were students who were standing up for, for fair trade coffee. They were asking for local produce, right? 
they were saying, we want some organic, uh, free-range meat. We want some organic, organic vegetables in our, in our dining halls. So something was going on. And then some of us got together, and we tried to figure out, tried to make sense of it, and we began to realize that there was some potential here. And if we started to come together over our different issues, right, the different camps and different ideas, and across campuses, we might be able to do something. And in that process, we began to realize that colleges and universities spend an awful lot of money on food. They spend $5 billion each year in America to feed their students. Right, $5 billion. So the thought is, what if we could take even a fraction of that and divert it away from business as usual, away from the biggest and baddest and worst com food companies to the smallest and best and most socially responsible food producers? Right? What, if we could, what if we could divest from that uh, industrial food system and invest in a real food economy? And we thought we could do it because students have power in this situation. They don't necessarily know it but they are the ultimate customers. And we could do it if there is strong student leadership. And it's been a privilege, a pleasure, and honor to meet many of those students over the last several years. And I want to tell you about one of them. Alex Sligar is a new friend of mine. He's from Eastern Washington University. He grew up in rural Eastern Washington. When he was a kid, his father lost their farm, ended up working on a feedlot. His brothers, Alex's brothers, went to serve in the military, and they served bravely in Iraq and Afghanistan. And Alex was following in their footsteps at the Naval Academy. He was following in their footsteps until he decided to serve his country in a different way, by joining, the real food, by joining the real food movement. He returned to Eastern Washington to the university, and he began a campaign to get the college to spend his dollars more wisely, to spend it actually in the region, directed at farmers and people. So folks like his dad could continue to work the land with dignity. And so Alex was joined by another young man named Mohammed Omar. Mohammed is from Somalia. And he, Omar had never considered himself an activist either. He had uh, he'd come to this country, and he says, actually I'm just going to read what he says, we have a famine going on in Somalia. I'm also a citizen of the United States and proud of this country. My family is here now dealing with the same issues with food as far as health and access. That's why I got involved. I want to educate myself on those issues and learn how to take action. So together, Alex and, and Mohammed and their other teammates began calling for transparency in the school's food purchases. They actually got access to see the records of the, of the dining service. And now they're moving on to ask the president to sign our real food commitment, which would dedicate a portion of the school's budgets, at least 20%, to real food purchases by 2020. And I want to tell you, if any of you are out there, if you're in college, you know people in college, this is a campaign which we're rolling out right now, this month, on Food Day. So get in touch with us, please, if you would like to be a part of it. I would really welcome that. In three years, we built a network of over 5,000 students at 350 colleges. Right? Students just like Alex and Omar and Katie and Kelsey and so many others I would love to mention. Students supported by the Real Food Challenge have won $45 million in real food commitments from their universities. That's annual food budgets. And that includes the entire University of California system. 
Incredible work, precedent-setting work then. What a huge university, and my friend Tim, Tim Galarno has done so much work to make that happen. You know Tim. To know Tim is to love Tim. It's what? Food Day is October 24th of this year. Am I right? I'm right. Uh, yes, there is. It's a Food Day website. There's also a link on our page, which is realfoodchallenge.org. www.realfoodchallenge.org. You can find information there. But there also is a Food, food Day website. It's put on. It's mainly sponsored by the, science, by the Center for Science and the Public Interest. It's the primary sponsor of Food Day. And it's kind of conceived like Earth Day, right? This is the first Food Day in America. We're starting something. And... I talked about the dollars we've shifted. Our goal and our estimation is that in 10 years we could shift a billion dollars of annual food purchases, right? And also set a precedent for other kinds of institutions. Right? We want to see this ripple effect uh, ripple out, because that's what ripple effects do. And, um, <laughs> and we also created, a, I want to mention this to you, a real food calculator, right? We have the goal, but we also have to be able to measure and hold schools accountable. So this real food calculator allows students to go in, get the invoices, say, here's what's actually going on. And we have 38 schools that are trying that right now and piloting it. So if you want to try that, please let me know as well. I just want to say it's more than about dollars, though. I talked about the dollars, but it's more than about, more than about dollars. It's really about the change that's happening on the ground. It's about farmers like Alan Hill, who's an apple farmer in, in Rhode Island, who is actually struggling uh, in his business. And some things happened, including a contract from Brown, universities that the student, from Brown University that the students had pushed for. And now Alex is selling apples to Brown University, and he's also selling apples, staying in business, and selling apples to the local elementary school. Right? And, and it's also about Eliza, who's a, a hog farmer in North Carolina. And North Carolina, as some of you might know, is, is ground zero for factory farm, right? for, for factory farm hogs especially, where, where the animals are kept in, in tight confinements, can't turn around, their excrement goes down below them, comes into pool, huge lagoons that they're actually sitting over. What someone told me is like they're being smoked over their own poop. So this is not what Eliza's farm is like. Her hogs are free pasture, uh, are free range. They're on the pasture. It's a wonderful, beautiful looking place. And because students at UNC pushed for this, she has a contract with the, with the university. And she's now selling at five other institutions as well. And so. At, Eliza and Alan and many other farmers like her are the backbone of the real food economy that we need to invest in. So we're beginning to wonder if this is one of the fastest ways to catalyze change in the system, right? Use, use existing food budgets, right? No new money, just change how it goes. And use the energy that students have but isn't necessarily, uh, hasn't necessarily been directed in that way, right? And we're trying to bring uh, where the demand has been fragmented, trying to bring it together, right, and focus it. Uh, where there's too little clarity, we want some more transparency. Where there is a lack of policy, we want new leadership. And I, I suggest it's like a different kind of activism. It's like, um, it's like voting with your dollar, but instead of that, you're voting with a billion dollars, right? <laughs> it's it's kind of like a boycott, but um, it's more like a pro-cot. Right? We're strategically investing in the kind of economy and, and social justice and environmental uh, outcomes that we want.
And I want to tell you that the real food challenge is just one part of a larger food movement. And many of you know that, and many of you are part of it. And this is the thing that really excites me. Right? Um, I didn't know it existed before. I, I uh, started the food project. I had no sense that I would find allies and brothers and sisters in every part of this country, uh, from Arizona to Mississippi, from Hawaii to Philadelphia, with groups that have fabulous names like People's Grocery, uh, you have <laughs> names like East New York Farms and Rooted in Community and, and, uh, and Generation Organics and Geno, okay, and Food What? Food what? Okay, you guys are there, all right. So this is an awesome, awesome, and, 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 and these are teens and 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and they're adult allies who are putting their hands in the dirt. They're growing food for themselves and their neighbors. They're reviving the recipes of their grandmothers, their nanas, their abuelitas, their kapunas, you know, and they're, they're changing the circumstances around them. And I want to show you what happens when we all got together, uh, okay? So I have a, one little glimpse of this, it's just 90 seconds. I actually think I'm out of time. Am I in trouble? I am in trouble. Okay. I'm in serious trouble. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm almost going to, I'm going to show this video, it's 90 seconds. I'm going to not say this other stuff. I'm going to say just one other thing, and then that's it. Um, you're done with me, and I am going to say, please show the video now. Is that okay? Okay. Change the world. Change the world. Change the world. Real food to me is food that's nourishing to my own body. Real meat to me, genuine, authentic. Something honest and something that's pure. Food is something that touches all of our lives in a lot more ways than we usually realize. Everything starts off with you, so you make the change. Yeah. We need to take responsibility for our actions and know that every decision that we make, it can either be oppressive or liberating, right? I think you actually take start at home, start taking care of their own community first. Change come from the youth. Young people have the power to do anything. Bringing people together for the benefit of the greater good for the future. The power of collaboration is unbelievable. The conference is great and you should, you know, check up about food and the kind of things that you eat. Unity Community Movement! Unity Community Movement! Unity Community Movement! That video makes me smile for so many reasons, including the fact that my wife is in it. Hi, Sarita. Um, and uh, I just want to say, um, you know, this is just the beginning. Um, our one thing that we're doing now is to, to take a next step, is to, is to make sure everyone can be a part of this movement. So we're starting an initiative called Live Real. Um, Live Real allows people to go to a website or also meet people in person and say, this is the commitment I made in my life, right? I learned how to make jollof rice and I'm sharing with my neighbors. I'm, I'm giving up junk food and soda for 30 days. I'm starting a garden. I'm helping my elderly neighbor with their, uh, with their food purchases. I'm going to the grocery store for them. Whatever it is, where you are starting, where you begin, even the small thing, we're going to share that. We're going to build community. We're training 
uh, investing the leadership of, of young people, especially those on the front lines. Um, I invite you to go check it out. Uh, the website is, is actually just in, in process, but it's, it's still functional. You can see it, livereelnow.org. Um, just come back later when we get it really fixed up. Um, and um, I look forward to being in this movement, food, uh, bioneers, otherwise, with you. Thank you very much. Thank you.